same is the same God the demons know and fear. But there is a separation between them and I and you. Demons do not worship this God. Fear never translates to repentance, which leads to salvation, which leads to worship. And we're going to see that this morning, along with some other things I hope will be deep for you. In James chapter 2, beginning in verse 18, we read, Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. Some Bibles say shudder. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, as we consider, Lord, that we stand before a holy, just, righteous creator, Lord, and, and one who has not left us without instruction and direction, 66 books given to his people to guide them. And we, Lord, are more blessed and more responsible than even our forefathers because they had less books, many of them. The children of Israel who came out of the land of Egypt had no book, Lord. They had a pillar of fire. They had your physical presence appearing to them. And yet they still struggled with their belief. Even to the point of saying, let's go back to the flesh pots of Egypt. Let's go back to the safety of slavery. Lord, even then they struggled watching a pillar lead them through the desert. Well, Lord, we have a pillar now. It is your word. It has been communicated to us. It has been preserved. It has been translated. It has been brought forth from ancient times, from old. And now, Lord, this word speaks to us not as an old, dusty document of interest, Lord, but a living and active aspect of yourself. Lord, let this word communicate to us just what it means to believe and to have a true belief that the demons do not have. Lord, that is our charge this morning. Let us now go into your word and find the evidence. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. James gives a person now, he gives a little analogy, and he invents an imaginary person for his argument. This is a common Jewish tactic to bring up the opposing side and then answer the opposing question. Someone will say, in verse 18, you have faith and I have my works. I serve, I help, I gather water for the camp, I, I helped in the temple before it was destroyed, I serve the Lord. But James is saying, yes, you do things, but that doesn't necessarily mean your actions translates to true faith. Because actions in and of themselves may be good or bad, but they don't necessarily mean that your salvation is true inside of your heart. Paul warns of this when he tells us, check and see if you are of the faith. Because coming into the church and being a physical presence amongst the body of the congregation is not a qualifier for authentic belief. It is not a qualifier for authentic salvation. It's, it's why in America, for a generation or more, we preach the message of get in church, and a lot of people did, but nothing happened. Nothing changed. And then in our postmodern culture, we decided that's because we're doing church wrong. We should change how we do things. And I don't mean decorations or lights or, or, or even clothing. I mean, let's change the message. Let's tell people that God loves you no matter how you are. And you can stay the way you are. Well, one as aspect of that is right. God does love you. But God has called you to change. 
He is not going to leave you in the place that he found you. The place he found you was spiritual death. You were a rotting carcass in spirituality, not, not offer to offer anything to God. God is not going to come to you, breathe life into you, and let that death go on. He heals it. He redeems it. He brings it into eternal life. And at some point will bring the soul even to himself. So James it, it brings up this argument and then shows that, show me your faith apart from your works. How can you show that your faith is real? How can you know and have assurance that your salvation is accurate? One of the best things the Lord has ever shown me was that often the very person who's concerned about their soul, they're, they're worried maybe even that, that they're not quite right with God as they should be, is the very person who not only is saved, but is growing authentically. Because the lost heart doesn't care about its place in front of God. The lost heart cares more about its possible place in a hell than it does before God. My fear is that a lot of cultural people in church, if we offered them a middle ground, a sort of earthly purgatory, that you're not really in heaven, but you're not really going to be tormented in hell, you're just sort of going to live like you did on earth for eternity, I think they would choose it. That sounds good. Because my lost heart doesn't want God, it doesn't want to suffer. That's what I fear, suffering. The authentic heart misses the presence of God. The authentic saved heart wants the presence of God and will not accept an earthly purgatory. It will not near be good enough for the true Christian. No, I have to go on to where my Lord is. How can I worship him if I do not go to where he is? Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Now, once again, we say this simply. James is not teaching a works-based salvation. He's not saying, you work and be good enough and try really, really hard, and then you'll get into heaven. No. James is saying the same thing Jesus and Paul is saying, that after your repentance and belief, after your conversion, after God has reached down into the septic tank of sin and lifted you out, you'll start to serve Him. And you'll desire to. And that leads to good works. Simply put, if I give the poor man a dollar, if I give him the dollar because, well, if I give this dollar, maybe God will accept me. That's works. But if I give him the dollar because God has accepted me, God has brought me into his house, and this dollar, I know, has no bearing on my place in eternity. That's why I can give it. That's works that reveal true faith. But look at the next verse. So we're going to spend the rest of our time today in verse 19. Because I was fascinated by this subject. I really began to wonder, how much theology are demons actually doing? Now, I don't think they're reading Sproul, per se, or Martin Luther. I don't think they're reading Bondage of the Will. <laughs> but Well, maybe the ones in Jude are, <laughs> if you remember the reference. But I begin to wonder, how much do they know? And then God caused me to realize this thought, this truth. Accurate knowledge about the Lord does not translate to authentic regeneration. Accurate knowledge about God. Because look at this verse now. We're going to have to unpack this slowly. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even, even the demons believe 
and shudder or tremble. Now we look at that and we go, oh man, be careful. Even the demons believe. Don't just say you believe. And that's true, but there's a qualifier here. What are the demons believing? They're believing that God, look at the verse, is one. The qualifier now that the demons are believing in is monotheism. The belief that God is one. That he's not made up of many gods. He's not a polytheistic God. Because remember, the nation of Israel were the, were the, were the strange ones. They believed in one God. And all the nations around them thought that was ridiculous. Because they looked at the world. They looked at the sun and the stars, the moon, the oceans. They looked at the wind, fire, animals. And they began to realize, right, these must all be their own gods. Because fire was such a destructive force, yet the ocean would easily quash it. Yet the fire could burn right along the edge of the shore, and the ocean couldn't touch it. Two gods, in their mind, warring against each other, and who would win? So they began to perceive that, and eventually what we know is polytheism, that there's an eternal number of gods. They're all in control. They're all fighting against each other. And they do exactly what we do, just on a higher plane than we're doing it. Imagine that for a second. They're, they're, they're just like us. And then, of course, that's how we get mythology, Greek, Roman, the gods all fighting each other. Even the famous story of Troy, unlike the horrible movie, has the gods intervening and helping certain characters do things. The Israelites were considered strange because they believed in one God. And, of course, God's revelation of the Trinity of the three persons does not discount the fact that he is one God. We are a monotheistic Trinitarian religion. You believe that God is one. So James is saying that you are monotheistic, and that is good. You have right and accurate knowledge about the Lord. The demons have that same right and accurate knowledge. The demons know that polytheism is incorrect. The demons know that there's only one God. They're not afraid of false gods. They were not afraid of Ra and Baal, and Moloch. They don't fear those gods because they don't exist. The demons believe that one God is real, and that's the one they fear. But now, church, we have to consider how this impacts us. I'll say it again. Accurate knowledge about God does not save you. In fact, have you ever been wrong about something in the Bible, and yet you were still a real Christian? I have. I've, I've had stupid thoughts and be like, oh, I wonder, I bet that's true. Thought it was true for a time and then read the Bible and went, oh, that was not true. Don't ask, I'm not telling you what it was. <laughs> oh, reading God's word, this is what's true. And I changed to the opinion of God's word instead of changing God's word to suit me. That's a whole other sermon by itself. But accurate knowledge of theology does not lead to regeneration or spiritual growth. It helps spiritual growth, but it doesn't cause it. What causes spiritual growth? God. The Holy Spirit. The Spirit causes spiritual growth. Because I have talked to some of the most educated, well-read atheists. Even poor Dr. Bart Ehrman, who, who, who knows far more Greek than I do, reads Hebrew. He's a, a scholar in residence in North Carolina, and he's an atheist. He does not believe in any, he doesn't believe God is real at all whatsoever. He lost his faith in Bible college because of a textual variant in Mark. And he thought, well, if God is real, then he would have left the word perfect. And I perceive it not to be perfect, so 
he must not be real. Now, I'm not going to disparage him any more than that. I'm just going to say he is well-educated, a PhD from Princeton Theological Seminary. That's about as good as you can get, <laughs> Bible-wise. And he doesn't believe accurate theology does not lead to authentic conversion. Now, what does this mean for us? Well, this is what I fear. I fear that generations of cultural Christianity have led to, I have right knowledge about God, and I can parrot that knowledge. Do you remember the story of our brother Ed Lacey, who's now with the Lord? He taught the talking parrot at Cracker Barrel, the sinner's prayer. And the parrot was like, yes, yes, you know, I know that I'm a sinner. <laughs> and that's what I think a lot of people in church are doing, is they're just parroting the words and the phrases and the right knowledge, but they don't actually have an authentic relationship with God. They have not actually repented and believed. And there are people who grow up, live, and die in the church with their right knowledge and their soul is far from God. I know this is true because it was true for the Jews. The Pharisees had right and accurate knowledge about God more than anyone else about the God of Judea and Israel, and yet they completely missed the prophecies of Jesus and therefore missed him. Paul mentions this in Titus chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. He says, To the pure all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure. See, we have many in church that have right and accurate knowledge, but they are defiled by unbelief. And even that knowledge is not pure, it's tainted for them. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. This, by the way, is the text that proves that James and Paul are not teaching different theologies. Because Paul just said, they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. Church, we struggle because they may be amongst us. And I don't mean just here at Joppa, I mean the church as a whole. There are those who are in that are not really in Christ. And that might sound harsh to you. Whenever I say things like this, I often look right at my Bible, lest someone accuse me of looking at them. Right and accurate knowledge won't save you. It helps. It makes it better and sweeter. But church, you know what saves you. Jesus. The repentance and belief in Jesus, awakened by God the Father in his plan to bring you, his people, to himself. The Jews had a monotheistic religion. I'd like you to turn to Isaiah 43, verse 10. Here's the key text for monotheism. What the rest of the world perceives now as foolishness. Even now, there are many uh, atheists who will tell you, oh, you know, in the sense that people worship things, multiple gods could be real. You know, so somebody makes what they love, a God, and that God could therefore come into existence by their making. I mean, just to think about that for a second now. We have unreligious, atheistic people who are now saying that, yeah, you could invent a God and he could become real in your mind. Because we have a relative truth culture that if I just really, really believe it, it will come true. Those are Disney movies. That's not real life. Isaiah 43, verse 10. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord. Who is supposed to have this knowledge? We are, his people. And my servant, 
in whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. God is saying, I am telling you who I am, where I come from, and what I do. And this is it. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. Full stop. There's no, there's no other ingredient. There's no other argument. I am the Lord. And besides me, there is no other Savior. There's no gods formed before or after him. He has not made any equals to him. In fact, by his nature, he would never do that. Create an equal to him. Now, as I said, the Trinity is a different doctrine. That's three persons within the one God. If you have questions about that, just see me after. I have some books I'll get you to read. <laughs> Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. Now, the false gods that we humans invented, God does not recognize those, nor shall there be any after me, which means their very false nature, God doesn't even recognize them. You can call whatever you want a God, but it doesn't exist. Only I exist. That's what God is saying. Now, we have right and accurate knowledge about God in Isaiah 43. But what are we going to do with that? Ronald uh, Blue in his commentary on James said this, You believe there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and they tremble. If so, he may be a typical Gentile believer who attacked the belief of monotheism accepted by all the Jews. He was saying to believe in one God may be good so far as it goes, but it does not go far enough. The demons even have that right theology. In fact, not only do they believe, it's the same word we use for faith in Greek, pisteo. They tremble at it or bristle up. The belief in one God is not trust in one God. Unless it is trust, unless it is true faith, it will not have the evidence of good works. <clears throat> Excuse me. Not have the evidence of good works. The right knowledge of the nature of God does not lead to spiritual conversion and growth. There's a phrase I want you to remember here. Too many people in church are getting by on their time, tools, and talent, and not the presence of the Holy Spirit. Time and tools and talent, prized possessions, especially in our culture. But if those are the things that's getting you to, through, and from church, that might be nice, but that's not God. Now, God will give growth in those areas. He will even give you those elements. But by themselves, they do not save. They cannot. And how many in church are getting by on their time, their tools, and their talent? Leaders talk about this a lot. There are times when I'm feeling spiritually run down or tired, as I will be after the summer camp this next week. And it's very possible to start running on time, tools, and talent of which I like to think I have a lot of. I'm sure we all do. Thank you. <laughs> the right knowledge of the nature of God can lead to time, tools, and talent, but that doesn't translate to real authentic growth. Which means you can go through your whole life at church knowing and saying the right things, answering the questions correctly, possibly even being perceived as spiritual and be far from the kingdom of heaven. Now we understand Matthew 7, where they came to Jesus in front of God and said, we've done all these things, Lord. We casted out demons in your name. And God said, depart from me. I never knew you. Because what they didn't do was repent and believe in his name. 
That's what they did to me. I'm so glad to stand before you and say, I have not casted out a demon before, but I have repented and believed. <laughs> if you would, turn to Mark chapter 7. And this is going to be a key text for us this morning. I don't want to uh, burden you or harshly deal with you, church, because this was harsh for me on myself this week. But I think it's so important to understand what's going on in Mark 7 and to mark it and avoid it in our practice here at Joppa and as Christians here in Chiefland. Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 9. Jesus is dealing with the Pharisees who have just criticized him and the disciples for washings, for not washing correctly before partaking of the table. And he said to them, you have a fine way, look at this now, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Now this is dangerous. But let's be careful. The word tradition is not a bad word. It's not a negative word. In fact, do you know what the negative bad word is here? Is your. Look again. You rejected the commandment of God in order to establish your traditions. Because God has given us so much freedom in the New Testament for tradition. And tradition's not a bad thing. I got a tradition of eating lunch after church on Sunday. I love that tradition. I don't have any plans to change it. <laughs> but there are traditions that could hurt us. Churches even splitting over traditions, like the color of carpets and chandeliers and things like this. I mean, how foolish. I'd rather quit. I'd rather resign than preside over such things. I really would. Tradition is not an evil thing. It could become that, but it's not evil in and of itself. Tradition is just a practice you do constantly, or have done or learned from older generations. Verse 10, for Moses said, honor your father and mother. So commandment here, I think the fifth one, right? And whoever reviles the father or mother must surely die. Now Jesus brings up something that the Jews themselves perform, and it's called the korban rule. If you say, verse 11, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you have gained from me, that is his time, tools, and talent, his work, to provide for his parents, is korban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and his mother. So what, what's going on here? Well, let's take a look. Let me get my other page out. You no longer permit him to do anything for his parents, thus making void the word of God by your tradition, and you have handed down in many such things that you do. Now, what is Jesus talking about? What's Korban? Well, it's in Numbers chapter 30, if you'd like to turn there. It's important to understand this. Numbers chapter 30, verses 1 and 2. Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes of the people of Israel, and saying, this is what the Lord has commanded. If a man vows a vow to the Lord, or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. So very important commandment. God, I vow to do this for you. To break such a commandment, is the punishment is death. You will not do that before the Lord. You will not break your word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. So that's the commandment. The Pharisees took that text from Numbers and extrapolated that if a young man was to say, give his money to the temple as a vow to God, the same money that he was supposed to take care of his ailing parents with, the parents had no claim to it whatsoever. 
And because of human corruption, what eventually began to happen in the Jewish temple was very similar to CEOs with offshore accounts. The money was earmarked and designated. Oh, no, no, no. I know Miss, Miss old Miss Johnson is dying and needs some water and some help, but that money, sorry, we've got to repair some of the brick next year. Wish we could help. That's what's happening. And that's what Korban is. It was a, it was a Jewish tradition that, well, you made a vow to God. Don't, don't go back on that. But in doing so, they created a tradition that was rejecting the commandment of God. And Jesus, as they're criticizing him for his disciples not washing properly, brings this up and says, you have rejected the commandments of God, the very thing God said to do plainly, honor your father and mother, take care of them in favor of this Corban rule that lines your pockets. See, corruption has always gone on at every religious institution. It's going on right now in the temple. John D. Grasmick, in his commentary on Mark, said this, Jesus is quoting a scribal tradition that sidesteps the divine command of God. Now that's bad enough right there. Let's figure out a way to not do what God said and do what we want instead. The words, but you say, are emphatic, showing the contrast with Moses' words. In their tradition, it was possible for a person to declare all his possessions to be korban and thereby absolve himself from the fifth commandment. Korban in the Greek is a transliteration of a Hebrew term referring to a gift devoted to God. It was a formula pronounced over money and property donated to the temple and its service by the vow. Such gifts could only be used for religious purposes. And who decided religious purposes? The Pharisees and those in the temple. If a son declared that the resources needed to support his aging parents were korban, then according to the scribes, he was exempt from the command of God. They had reasoned out, we can exempt you from one of the Ten Commandments. You don't have to follow it. Just do this and call it Korban. And people went, okay. His parents were legally excluded from any such claim on it. The scribes emphasized that the vow was unchangeable, citing Numbers 30 and held priority over his familial responsibilities. The Jews had unlimited access to the Old Testament, more knowledge, right and accurate than anyone else. And they abandoned the commandments of God in favor of their tradition. And I'm not just talking about the liberty of tradition, of when to have church, and when to have potluck, and how to decorate. No, no, no. They abandoned the commandments of God in favor of tradition that specifically contradicted the commandments. See, it's perfectly fine to talk or even debate about what time you should have church on Sunday. Because nowhere in the Bible does God say, Thus saith the Lord, 11 a.m. by the American calendar. <laughs> Doesn't say that. In fact, the only reference to attendance is in Hebrews 10. Don't neglect to be together. And that is why. That is why you have elders, because at some point, God reveals that this person who's been missing because they're sick or because they're in trouble or something's happened and their soul cannot wait to get back to the fellowship, you'll see it. But the one who begins to neglect. And that's why Jesus gave us Matthew 18, so we could work through that process in a right manner, in a right way. In favor of tradition, 
that contradicts the very commandments that God has given. See, it's if this church ever decided, like, you know what, 11 o'clock's a little early. We're going to go 6 o'clock at night from now on, go a couple hours. Great. God would be pleased with that. However, if this church ever reasoned out that, you know, we don't really have to have service anymore. We don't really need that anymore. In fact, let's not meet together. If we ever abandon the commandments of God in favor of a tradition that contradicts the very commandment we're called to follow, then we among all men are the most egregious. Church, is this coming across to you? I know it's a lot of information, Korban and Jewish scribal traditions, I know. But let me put it simply. Tradition's not a bad and evil thing. Don't let anybody tell you it is. Disobeying the commandments of God is the evil that our flesh is trying to do even right now. Right now, your flesh wants anything but God and is working on you even right now to get away. That's what causes things like Korban. Now, I say all that to lay a foundation for this. I, this week, begin to look into my own life and say, Lord, this is going to hurt. But where have I established Korban rules in my life of things I want, but they disagree and contradict what you want? And Lord, whatever elements of Korban I find in my own heart and soul, let them be removed even to my hurt, even to my own pain or shame, let them be removed in favor of your commandments. And God was dealing with me in a very, I hope, profound and mature way. Like, yes, here are some areas where you're, you need to get back to me and, and more on what I say. And church, I would encourage you to do the same. Now, please don't hear me as going, y'all got a bunch of traditions we got to get rid of. No. Just talking to some ladies before church about how to get more flowers in here. <laughs> and there's so many good traditions, too. There's another tradition that you guys do that I, that I enjoy. It's called tithing. <laughs> Don't let anyone tell you that your tradition is evil. Because that's the postmodern world's argument against us. You just all operate on tradition. And sometimes that's true. We have traditions. But when they become korban, when we have ex clear and explicit commands from the Scripture, and we have reasoned out, we don't have to follow those. We're going to do something else. We're going to try things a different way. We are in serious error, and we need correction. And I would hope, church, you know, look in your own life, examine. Are there Corban things going on? You know, I'm proud to say that I, I took a look at our ministries this week with this in mind, and did not find any serious thing that I was like, oh, we have to change this. Not at all. Not at all. In fact, the Lord was far more showing me the gentle, easy process of avoiding Corban things. And I really want that to be the key for you this morning. If you do have something going on in your life that maybe you need to change, amen. But what I want to really challenge you to is let's keep our nose to this grindstone for a season in the future so that these Corban things do not become a part of us. So that we don't ever reason out why we don't have to follow this command of God in favor of something else. Are you willing to do that, church? Are you willing to be careful and look? Because it's coming. The world is going to get just even more evil. It's going gonna, it's gonna to grow more uh, hateful. They're going to call you horrible, nasty things. You know, I know that we uh, who are pro-life are celebrating on Friday, but even that will bring more opposition 
to our Christian position. And remember, it must remain a Christian position. I posted on Facebook the other day that we fellow Christians, we must be pro-life more than in our words, but in our deeds. That's very true. So let us be careful of these Corban things, but we're not going to be left here. Oh no. If you would, turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. We must be careful of Korban. We must not allow these traditions to come in and change our worship of God, taking away from His commandments in favor of men. But for true believers, even people who find themselves with a Korban thing in their life that they have to repent of and give to the Lord, God has not left us in such a place. 1 Peter chapter 1, 8. As you're turning there, let me remind you of the words of James. I will show you my faith by my works. What is the best work that could be expressed after salvation? I believe that it is worship. I believe it is the practice and the continuous practice of enjoying the presence of God. Look at 1 Peter 1.8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. How can you love someone you've never seen? Faith. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Now, why is it inexpressible? Because the God of all creation, who put every star where it hangs, who created the entire universe, that science tells us is still expanding. I love that image because when light goes out, it just keeps going. The universe literally pulls back and makes room for the light. Who could do such a thing apart from God? I'll create it, and it'll keep on going forever. This God, who loves you and is now filling you with a joy that is inexpressible because it comes straight from Him. That's why we can't express it at its truest nature. Because we still have the flesh, we still have sin. But at one point, there's going to be a time where we can't express it. And it's when God, who is not going to neglect to meet together with us, brings us to the final church service that has no end. Did you ever think about that? There's no closing prayer in heaven. The potluck never ends. Chick-fil-A never runs out. It never stops. It just goes on and on. And, it's, and after a billion, gazillion years, God might decide, all right, verse 2. <laughs> and the worship goes on. God might say, let's try Popeye's for a while. <laughs> it just, it never stops. This is inexpressible. I can't express to you how it's going to be when the worship never stops. See, I, I could try that right now. There, there have been preachers who were like, I'm going to preach 24 hours. I'm going to preach 36. I'm never, you know, we're not going to stop. But eventually the dude's going to fall out. <laughs> you could put an IV in him and keep him hydrated, but he's going to go down at some point. Our worship, because of sin, stops. And we have to go and recharge and rest and get built back up. But in glory, it never ends. That's why it's inexpressible. That's why it's filled with glory. I love this image. God, in John 4, when Jesus is at the well, and he tells the woman, you need a wellspring in here, one that keeps bubbling out. The same God is going to bring us to a place where the spring is flowing everlasting and fills up each one of us and never stops filling. And we never have to pour out. For we are all perfect vessels at that point in glory with God. No cracks, no blemishes, 
No areas for the water to run out and leak out. No, no. True belief in God and a right relationship in Him. That is one not based on only knowledge, but based on repentance and belief and faith. Leads to joy that cannot be explained and a filling of glory that causes worship in the mouth and in the heart. If your experience with God does not lead to worship, it may be that you only have knowledge of God, however correct, but not a real relationship with Him. And I would encourage you, if you think that's you, to turn to Jesus now. And abandon all hopes of knowledge in favor of real conversion. Go to Jesus Christ and fall on your knees and repent of sin and believe that He is the Son of God. Jesus said, if you come to me, I will not cast you away. I will save you. Come to me. But I am a student of all Scripture, not just parts of it. And I believe John chapter 3. The Spirit is blowing where it wishes. You and I hear the sound, but we can't direct or know where it's going. We see the effects of God and we rejoice. So rejoice today if the Spirit has blown upon you. If it has come by where you are, in a place that I bet you would admit was not worthy of God to come by. But it did. Turn to Jesus. Reject any knowledge and traditions that contradict Him. And find inexpressible joy forever. Church, I, I encourage you, abandon your sinful korban and instead come to the Lord, a real high priest who's never going to contradict God's commandments for you. He's always going to direct you and your money rightly. And your spiritual output that comes as a gift from Him and returns to Him in worship, He will continue to fill you up. So go to Jesus now. And remember, tradition's not a bad thing. God has a tradition. It's called loving His people. And He's never going to stop. So let's find inexpressible joy in that. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you once again that our joy and inexpressible joy is not based on the right knowledge. It's not based on having all the correct interpretations, remembering all the theological points. Lord, it is based on you. It is based on your Son. It is based on your Spirit who blew by me when I was dead and lost in my sin and caused an awakening. Cause me to repent and to believe in you. Lord, and that is real faith. That is a real, authentic relationship with God. And I believe it's best for this way, Lord. How much difficult it might be to add salvation to knowledge when I can add knowledge to my salvation. So Lord, help us to grow. Help us to create even new traditions. Lord, ones that glorify you. And help us, Lord, to identify the Korban things and repent of them, remove them in favor of your worship. Lord, I thank you so much for this place, this church of saints that encourages me that come week after week, Lord, to hear your word. But most of all, Lord, we thank you for the reason that we are a good church, a great church. It's not because of us. It is because we have a good and great God. So, Lord, we thank you now. Remember us in our sin and our afflictions. Help us to continue to repent and believe. And help, Lord, as the Father said over his child, help my unbelief. Lord, continue 
to glorify yourself in this place through these people. And all of God's people say, Amen.